those of you who don't know me, my name is Russ. I am part of the leadership here. Um, on again, off again, when I'm back, I appreciate the elders um, allowing me to be a part of that. Uh, when I return home, um, Mountain Church has been our home uh, for over 10 years, and so it's good to be back. Um, it's a lot of lights shining on me right now, and so I, I'm a little bit out of practice in uh, speaking before groups. So, um, but we'll work through this um, uh, as quickly as possible. I don't want to go too long. I have um, a little mark on my, my watch on when I'm supposed to stop, so I'll make sure we don't have people come get us out of the nursery that we need to get out of here. Um, through the series of True and Better, we've looked at what's called typology. Um, not seeing scripture as just this uh, random set of stories and actually looking from a 30,000 foot view of all of scripture. Um, God reveals himself to people through um, his creation and also through scripture. And as we look through the stories of the Bible, the familiar stories that we've all come to know and love, we can actually see a representation of Christ in each and every one of them. God reveals his plan of redemption through all the stories. And today we're looking at uh, the book of Esther. And um, Esther is um, actually an unusual book. It's the only book of the Bible that um, does not mention God at all. So thank you, Justin, for giving me that to preach. Um, uh, you know, tell him to just run and go preach the gospel. It doesn't mention God. Um, but Esther is written uh, by a Jewish author to a Jewish audience. And it's written with a Jewish literary technique that um, is called a strange word I can't hardly pronounce, but it's very similar to the word Esther. And that Jewish technique means hidden in plain sight. So what we see in the book of Esther is that um, throughout the book, um, God is conspicuously absent. You'll see a section in here where Esther actually calls for a fast of the entire nation. But she doesn't say pray to God, although we know fasting and praying come together. Um, Mordecai talks about uh, the providence of God where he says, hey, we, you, you may be called for such a time as this. And, um, but he doesn't even mention God when it comes to um, uh, telling Esther that if she doesn't come through to rescue the nation of Israel, that rescue will come from another place. So um, what I want to do is to take um, uh, just a very quick um, outline or cliff note version of the book so we can kind of catch up to see where Esther uh, is being used by God. I want you to see the typology of Esther, um, Jesus being the true and better Esther. Esther uh, was willing to give her life for the nation of Israel, but uh, Jesus actually did give his life for all humanity. We also see that, that, uh, that Esther was prepared before time uh, to be a mediator uh, between uh, destruction and the nation of Israel. But Jesus was also prepared before uh, the beginning of time to be our mediator, to save humanity from um, our sin and ultimate destruction. I want you to see that throughout Scripture, um, we can see the picture of Christ, the redeeming power of God. Because God is not um, completely mentioned in Esther. We can see God throughout the story because of what Bible scholars call these ironic reversals. 
where the plot is going this way, then all of a sudden things turn back this way. In our language today, we would say, as luck would have it, right? It's, uh, uh, and it, it seems like this just happened. But we talk about that in our terms because of our faith through the providence of God. So I'm going to start uh, by looking at Esther. I'll pray. And then um, we want to talk about the providence of God in our lives and how we can participate in that. So pray with me, church. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Father, I ask for clarity. I ask for um, a logical progression of what you would have me teach today. Father, you know my shortcomings. You know my insecurities and my fears. Father, you know what you want to say to your people. And I ask right now in your providence that you use me, that you speak in such a way that something just clicks in our mind that we begin to see you for who you are. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. God's sovereignty is difficult to see in the moment. Providence is really easy to see if you look back, right? You can always look back and say, well, that's where God was working. I can see that back there. But in the moment, our everyday lives are so, I don't know, ordinary, right? You wake up in the morning, you go to work, you've got stuff to do. We have Cheerios, we have flat tires, we have Visa bills. We have, we have stuff to get done and we get preoccupied because we're so close to what's happening. The story of Esther shows us that um, even 700 years before Christ, that um, God was using ordinary, everyday people like you and I. He orchestrated the events of their lives to bring about the salvation of a nation. Now, how that pertains to us today, and I want to give you some practical things. How that pertains to us today, I believe, is this. Even when God seems absent, he's working things out in a way that they are best. Dr. King says that, uh, as a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King, that, that uh, the moral arch of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I take that to mean that, that, that God is working things out in the way that they are best. And the reason that they are best, they're on his timing. It's just very difficult for us to see the providence of God in our everyday lives. It's too ordinary. Um, the story of Esther actually begins kind of in a, in a weird way. There's not a lot of stories in the Bible that actually starts with a party that's actually pretty wild. This story begins with a monarch 700 years before Jesus, the most powerful person in the world, and this is a party to end all parties. You thought you partied back in Panama City. This guy had a party. Eight, excuse me, six months of partying went on, and at the end of the party, they decided to have a party to celebrate the last party. They kept partying. They had a seven-day party, and because everybody was partying, and this monarch is drunk and stupid, he decides it'd be a good idea to bring his wife Vashti out to be in parade in front of a bunch of people. Not a good idea, right? Because Queen Vashti says, no, I'm not coming out there in front of your drunk friends and you. And so, uh, you know, she like kills the buzz. Everybody's mad. So uh, the king decides, here's what I'll do. I'll get me another queen. 
And so what are they going to do? They have this contest, and it just so happens that this little Jewish girl by the name of Esther, about 14 or 15 years old, happened to be in the kingdom. Her mother and father had passed away, and she'd come to live with her uh, cousin, Mordecai. And so Mordecai takes her to the king, and she gets in this contest where they select a new queen. And as luck would have it, the providence of God, the king chooses Esther to be the queen. And so in a moment in time, this little girl, this little Jewish girl coming from uh, an obscure background, very similar to Christ, she actually becomes the queen of the most powerful country in the world. She goes from about the status of livestock all the way to the queen. Now the story progresses over for a number of years, 10 or 15 years. Mordecai, her cousin, actually gets a, like a government job. He hangs around out at the gate. And there, everything is going along pretty good. Queen uh, Esther is now in charge. Her life is going pretty good. Everything seems to be uh, fine in the kingdom. And then one day, they got the, the king's second in command, a guy named uh, Haman, actually walks out to the gate and he sees Mordecai and Mordecai doesn't bow down to him. And so Haman becomes extremely angry and he decides that he needs to kill Mordecai. Now Mordecai is a Jewish person and unbeknownst to the king, um, Esther is Jewish also. But Haman decides what he will do is get Mordecai killed and also he convinces the king to wipe out the entire nation of Israel. Now remember, in wiping out the entire nation of Israel, that is basically a genocide that would stop the progression of bringing in the Messiah, right? And so God doesn't have that happening. So what we see in the story of Esther, we've come up to the point where um, Esther is in a place of authority and Mordecai is actually um, going to her to tell her, look, we need some help. We need you to go to the king and make a plea for the nation of Israel. So I want to start by reading a couple of sections of, uh, of, uh, of the passage to actually see what Esther does and how she moves um, through um, her handling of, 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 um, of what's going on. Now remember, Esther is part of royalty. She's comfortable. She absolutely has, um, she absolutely has nothing uh, to trouble her. Her life is pretty sweet, pretty sad. This is from Esther chapter 4, verse 4. I'm going to read just the first three verses. It says, When Esther's young men and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed, she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth. But, when he, went, but he would not accept them. And then Esther called for Hathak and one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what it was and why it was that he was so distressed. So here we see that Esther is actually pretty comfortable in her life. She actually looks out and sees that Mordecai is in trouble. The nation of Israel is in trouble. She's not in trouble. But she says, look, I'm going to intentionally move away from comfort and towards me. If you and I are going to be a part of following Christ, if we're going to be a part of taking part in the providential hand of God, our manner of life will be moving away from comfort and toward me. That's who we are as a church. Our culture right now is so involved with teaching us and convincing us that we need to be comfortable. You watch television commercials. I'm so amazed when I come home. There's, 
Every kind of pillow that there is, there's some kind of long pillow you can lay down with. I don't know what this means. Healthy, normal, everyday people sleep in like hospital beds. You raise your feet, drop your butt, all those things. Comfort is poured into us and um, we fall into that trap of being comfortable. As far as um, the things that it does to us, a couple of things. First of all, when we become comfortable, we become numb to the things that are around us. Completely numb. The more comfortable we become, the less likely we are to move in to help someone else. Everything becomes not your problem, right? Absolutely not your problem. Esther is actually taking a step towards, away from comfort and towards needs. It can happen in our everyday lives. It can happen in how, how we live. It can happen in churches. Um, David Murrow talks about the difference between a church plant and an established church after a number of years. Um, a church plant starts out almost like what uh, Murrow calls like a, a baseball that's been hit. Like you hit, a, you hit a baseball and it's a long fly ball and it goes up, it has a peak and then it drops back down. Almost every church in its existence will go through that arch at some point and sometimes. And here's the things that he talks about, the mindset of being comfortable as opposed to the mindset of being missional. A church plan works on offense. It's grow or die. On defense, growth is disruptive. On offense, the church is goal-oriented. On defense, they're gathering-oriented. On offense, the church must bring in new people. On defense, they must keep existing people happy. On offense, innovative and high demand is the, is, is, is the marker of the church. On defense, the church is predictable and low demand. On offense, lay empowered. Uh, when, when the church is on offense, they are lay empowered and exist to achieve something. On defense, they are clergy driven and exist as a network of relationships. As followers of Jesus, we move away from comfort and towards need. The default setting of our lives is to be proactive, is to move. Most of the time, we want to wait and see. Most of the time, we want to sit back and say, well, someone else will do it. Clergy-driven means that oh, we come to a church and all of a sudden we let the staff do what they're supposed to do. That's not how it works. We don't let Justin do it. We do it. Jocko Willing says, get comfortable being uncomfortable. The way we engage in the providence of God, the way we actually take part in His redemptive plan is to get moving towards things. You may be the only disciple there to take care of something. It begins with a posture of saying that today I'm going to move away from comfort and towards need. The next thing she does is she calls for a fast. Now, I know it doesn't say that she prays, but this is what she says in verse 12. She says, And they told Mordecai that Esther said, and Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. 
And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And Mordecai went away and did everything that Esther had ordered him. I read an article in T4G. It says that the average Christian spend 90 hours a week in uh, talk radio, news media, social media, and podcasts. 90 hours a week. I don't know if that's true or not. I try to watch myself and see if I'm doing 90 hours a week. Most people kind of qualify things. Um, you ever been around people, you know, and they tell you about a television show, but we don't watch much television. But this is just what we saw. We are influenced by the things that we're around. We're being conformed by something. You are always being conformed by what goes into your mind, what goes into your eyes, what you hear, and what you see. You have the authority to choose what that is. You can walk away from the distractions of this world long enough to begin to engage God, or you can engage the matrix that we're in. 90 hours a week. Tim Keller says, the infallible test of the spiritual integrity is your private prayer life. I thought about that. The infallible test of your spiritual integrity is your private prayer life. In other words, we can act a certain way here. We can all come together here. But our private prayer life is really how we connect to God, right? You start feeling guilty. Well, I just don't pray enough. I just don't pray enough. I have learned over the last few years, the reason I don't pray enough is that I don't pray enough. That's, that's, yeah, I know it's simple, but I, that's, that's not even profound. You can probably write that one down. So but really what happens is when you decide to separate yourself from the influence and the constant algorithm that's discipling you, and actually spend time quietly reflecting on Scripture, memorizing Scripture, looking at what Jesus did and how He lived, putting the things that He taught into practice, then what happens to you is you become more like this person that you say you follow. You don't become a person that prays a lot because Jesus tells you to, you become a person who begins to pray like Jesus teaches you to. You become the kind of person that looks forward to prayer. See, Jesus would steal away from people to go pray. If he thought it was a good idea, I think us as disciples should do that. We can quietly separate from those things that distract us from knowing God better. You don't have to make a big announcement. I don't look at Facebook much. We know you look at Facebook because you're not like Jesus, right? We, you can tell when, when you become the kind of person he is. You see, I believe it's possible. I believe it's possible to, to learn from Jesus 
how to live with the same peace, hope, and joy that he lived in. See, I think it's possible. See, I think you can learn from him how to live with peace. I think you can learn from him how to become the kind of person who doesn't have to show up in every fight you're invited to. We go through this spiritual life, this Christian life, and literally what we do, we try really hard, right? We come to church and we study hard and we go to small group and then we just really try not to, you know, spray the people in traffic and shoot the bird or something. We, we try so hard. We've got to learn to walk away from this trial. We're trying to imitate Jesus and begin to spend time learning from Him to become like Jesus. You see, there's a difference in doing what He does. People can imitate Him. That's, that's Matthew 7. People can do a lot of stuff that imitates Him. But knowing Him is a different thing. You see, we claim to follow this Jesus, this, this person who said, I don't even have a house. Birds have nests, foxes have holes. I got nothing. This life of simplicity that he proclaimed, I'm not telling you to sleep on nails, I'm not telling you to be miserable, but I am telling you to adopt his manner of life, his mindset, long enough to become like him. You see, I believe it's possible to learn from Jesus how to forgive. How to become the kind of person that forgives naturally. Not grit your teeth. Jesus did not grit his teeth on the cross to forgive those who nailed him to it. He forgave them because he had compassion on them. They didn't know what they were doing. He interceded in prayer. This is the man that we follow. That's the guy. See, I believe it's possible for him to relieve me from worrying about things. I think Jesus can teach me to worry about money just like he worries about money, which is nothing. I think he can teach me to have anxiety just like he does, which is nothing. It's possible. But you're going to have to separate. You're going to have to change your reality. Realize who you are. You are a spiritual being with a physical body. That's who you are. You will exist forever. You can't help that. And from here on out, you get the opportunity to be the most awesome person that's ever lived. The most personally powerful person that's ever lived. A guy who interceded for the downtrodden. A guy who stood in the gap for those who were um, marginalized in our culture. But it's going to take time. It's going to take work. We must constantly realign our self-sufficient mindset to place our confidence in the invisible reality. This word invisible reality, I've capitalized. That's God. My first duty each day is to seek His kingdom mentally and spiritually by reestablishing the mingling of my life with God's life. See, you wake up in the morning and all of the cares from yesterday pile back up. Don't you stack them up? What is it I was worried about? That? What was it? What's the bill? They're coming. The world's in. Come out. Sickness. We got all of that. But our first duty each day is to reestablish this mingling of our life with God's life. 
And then you're going to go deal with the rest of it. And you're not responsible for the outcome. See, you do the work, but he's responsible for the outcome. Last thing that Esther does is to get to work. Here's what she does. She knows that she may die if she walks in the presence of the king. She's already decided if I perish, I perish. And this is what she says. It says on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes, stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters. And while the king was sitting on his royal throne, inside the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. We've got to step into the arena. We daily distrust comfort. We realign our reality by reestablishing the mingling of our life with God's life. And then you do you. I want to remind you, Esther's no lawyer. Esther put on her stuff, right? She won this beauty contest 14 years ago, and hey, she's putting her stuff back on. She's rocking it, man. I mean, look, that's, that's what she did. She didn't walk around trying to talk, be something she's not. See, God has made you the way you are. He's made no mistakes in bringing you up through all the circumstances of your life. You're exactly where you're supposed to be. Your DNA, who you are as a person, He has made that. And it is good. When He changes who you are, more than that, what He does, He changes how you are. It's, it's not that, that I, I'm, a, I'm a dad, I'm a, I'm a grandfather, a husband, a veterinarian. That, that's all I know. Obviously not a preacher. <laughs> I mean, that's who I am. But he gives me the opportunity to be a disciple. I get to follow him. He gives me his reputation. And I get, I get him. That is the gift of the gospel. Here's the truth. Yes, you're going to have to pray. God does the work. But you're going to have to act. You've got to move. You've got to do something. Somebody's got to make a call. Somebody's got to make a play. Jesus said, follow me. And I know this is the language that we use in church all the time, and it's good language. Personal relationship. Jesus never told his guys, I'm real concerned about your comfort. And he never told his guys, I want to have a personal relationship with you. And I know what that means, but he really just said, follow me, right? Follow me. We look, we look to him. And we put the things that he taught into practice. That's what we do. 